Welcome to The Sword and the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. So glad to have you with us. And we would love to have you with us in January, January 21st through the 23rd. We are going to have a conference down here called The Only God, The Doctrine of God. We need a recovery of the doctrine of God, the mm. classical doctrine of God. As the our God guest, who is. The God who is. The God who is simple. You're going to hear more about that uh, later on in our podcast. We have James Dolezal, who's going to be preaching God's Word down here in January. Uh, you, me, Vody Bauckham, Chad, Chad Vegas. Vegas, and we've even got our friends Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker from the Just Thinking podcast. We're going to do a podcast, a live podcast. Just on, thinking about the sword and trial. Just thinking about the sword and trial <laughs> and the topic of God and the state. So that should be a wonderful time. And a lot of fan members are coming to the conference, and we have some exciting things planned for mm-hmm. those things uh, for the fan members. If you're not a part of the fam, check it out at founders.org, what it means to join the Founders Alliance membership. You can come in at three levels. We have the armory and uh, just some great content that's going up in there weekly for those who are part of the fam. Wonderful. Well, today we're delighted to have Dr. James Dulazal with us. Uh, he is Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Cairn University, which is uh, outside Philadelphia. Uh, He's written several books. Uh, The book that has most intrigued me, the one that I first was introduced to him by, is All That Is In God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Theism. James is going to come and uh, speak to us, as Jared said, in the conference where we're looking at the doctrine of God in January. But we have him on the show today in order to just kind of talk a little bit about that and then more significantly about why we need to be talking about the doctrine of God. I mean, What's going on in the evangelical world today with regard to the God who is? There's been lots of controversy over the last few years among good guys within the Reformed world, and there needs to be some clarity. So, uh, Dr. Dolezal, thank you so much for joining us today from Philadelphia. Tom and Jared, thanks for having me. James, we're so glad to have you here, man. And I'm just hoping that we can chart out uh, some important uh, aspects of the doctrine of God today on this podcast with you and then even think through some of the culture applications. You know, we've done a lot of work uh, through our film by what standard and then our book by what standard we've been considering kind of what's going on in our society. And as I was introduced to you, I think I was introduced first of all to your um, online lectures. You've got a, a number of things that are online on YouTube and it was striking to me how clearly you articulated the doctrine of God as you did. And you spoke of this theistic mutual. Mutualism, uh, I was seeing all sorts of implications downstream from that doctrine, which would make sense. And Calvin told us in the beginning, knowledge of God, knowledge of, of man. So, uh, you know, you say this here in your conclusion. I'm just going to kind of offer this up to you as an introduction and you go where you'd like to with it. In your conclusion, chapter seven of your book, All That Is in God, first paragraph says, it is difficult to overstate the contrast between the older outlook of classical Christian theism and the newer viewpoint of theistic mutualism. These two approaches to the doctrine of God are not not two slightly different ways of saying basically the same thing. The classical view insists upon God's unchanging plentitude of being, while the mutualist view believes such an emphasis presents a barrier to the possibility of creatures enjoying a significant relationship with God. That was fascinating to me. Would you drill down on that? What is this classical theism, and why do some think that it is a barrier to relationship with God? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and it's one that I've personally had to wrestle through um, some of what I, I may be critiquing in the book, All That Is In God. I like to say a uh, big title, little book, uh, <laughs> is uh, are positions that I that I held or wrestled with um, because I couldn't see what the alternative was or even that there needed to be one. Classical theism, in short, is, uh, is sort of a, a, a loose collective term of doctrines held by the church Catholic, small c, uh, down the ages. And you can see these uh, in, the, uh, in the theology of, of people like um, Athanasius and Augustine. Um, and, and others like Cyril of Alexandria as well, uh, later in the medieval ages by uh, early medieval by Boethius and Anselm and Aquinas. And you certainly find them again uh, in Calvin and in many of uh, his, his Protestant successors, as well as the Lutheran scholastics. So what are these doctrines? These are, these are doctrines that really refer to God's um, being his attributes, uh, and these would include things like immutability, that God does not change, um, impassibility, uh, somewhat related, that God is without passions. Uh, we'll even find that in a lot of uh, early Protestant and evangelical um, confessions of faith. Others, uh, that God is simple or not composed of parts, um, and, and by the Middle Ages, that God is purely actual, which is just a way of saying um, that God is I am. He's not a little bit I am not yet. Uh, <laughs> God is not in the process uh, towards some future state of being with which he's not identical. So these are, these are all ways of characterizing that, that infinite and divine plentitude of, of being or ways of Exp not expl explaining is a word I want to hold off on because God's incomprehensible, but ways of expressing his, his infinity, uh, that God is not a finite and a contracted and a bounded being. Theistic mutualism, on the other hand, finds some of these doctrines to be problematic because it seems that if God cannot change and if God is without passions, as the older writers would have said, almost universally, uh, I like to say, you know, one of the that was a that was a meat and potatoes doctrine for 1,700 years, and then somehow it kind of dissipated into thin air, uh, and and now it sounds wrong to us. Uh, these doctrines make it seem like God cannot be meaningfully involved with me and my life because meaningful involvement requires give and take from both parties. Uh, I have to be able to receive something from you, but for it to be really a, a meaningful personal connection, you have to be able to receive something from me. So I'm a giver and a, and a receiver, and so are you. Um, and that allow this mutualistic exchange, giving and being given unto, is really uh, conceived as the basis for all meaningful personal intimacy and nearness. And if we're going to have our fellowship um, by the Spirit, through the Son, with the Father, the triune God, if we're going to have God as our beatitude, as our great reward, and to enjoy a, a, a fellowship with Him in, as He is in three persons, our own person joining into, into a delight, the, the delight and the joy of Trinitarian bliss, if we're going to achieve this great goal of, you know, the, the chief end of man to glorify God and join forever, then God's going to need to, it would seem, um, be able to receive something from me um, <clears throat> to allow me to act upon him, because that's how 
personal and um, sincere relationships work uh, among humans. I think the other side to that as well, and I, I want to give the due to those who hold that view, is that the Bible itself uh, speaks in language uh, about God's anger waxing and waning and reconciliation and of personal fellowship, um, so that the biblical language itself seems on one on one reading of it uh, to support this notion that God is in a, in a mutualistic relationship. And by, and I'm, I'm, I try to be very um, clear in how I'm defining mutualistic. Uh, I mean, acting upon and receiving act upon oneself. So I don't just mean um, that God create, that we, God creates and we are created. So there's a mutualism of the creator creature. I mean, it more in the sense of um, a symbiotic relationship of giving some actuality of being and receiving in turn um, actuality of being back to yourself. Hey, James, you said uh, for 1700 years, you know, this was largely just accepted. Where do you see things beginning to get off track? I mean, who would you point to and say, okay, you know, here's where the door opened and here's where the uh, process began to move in wrong directions? There's probably not, a, you know, a, a single culprit uh, in the loss of or the, the erosion of classical theism. In fact, it um, it begins, I, I think, very, very slowly. Um, and over time, there's sort of a cumulative effect where it just doesn't um, have any theological purchase anymore. But I, I do think that if I could sort of identify an era of Christian history where the um, where the, the old foundations start to get shaken loose, um, it probably comes just on the heels of modernity where someone like Immanuel Kant, mm. uh, a Prussian uh, philosopher of uh, the 18th century, Immanuel Kant is arguing that um, man as man does not really know nature as nature. And so mm. classical metaphysics and its language about being and substances and accidents and natures and essence and all the all the stuff that was the grammar of traditional Christian theology, um, even even down to the age of um, 17th century English Puritans, you'll find that kind of language in John Owen or in Stephen Charnock or even in a confession like the Second mm-hmm. London Confession written by Baptists in the later part of the 17th century. That language becomes problematized by Kant when Kant suggests that man doesn't really have access to being uh, in that respect. And the church, when I say the church, obviously with with great exceptions, but the the church in one sense was uh, frightened. I don't know if frightened is the right word. Um, was was at least. Um, uninterested in mounting a defense of these kind of traditional metaphysical terms, terms about being and terms about becoming. Uh, And I think that what happened was that there was a sort of a a withdrawal from that level of discourse and articulation um, in which uh, people were satisfied simply to read their Bibles, believe its story of salvation, and share the gospel uh, near and far. And this is the great age of of evangelistic um, and missionary work uh, around the globe, spurred so much by by European and British evangelicals uh, at the time. 
and this, these were very good things, and yet what was lost was a, a clear understanding of the language of being that really was part of, by that time, part of the Christian heritage. Um, what does substance mean? What do, what do accidents mean? When I read Charnock and I read that God has no accidents, um, I think to my, my modern mind thinks, well, that means God makes no mistakes, so there's no unintended outcomes. But he has something much more... Um, ontological in view that has to do with being. So I, I think that this attack on the language of being and its mm. coherence and even its knowability um, sort of caught, spurred evangelicals to flee that language. Um, but I think it came at a cost. Mm. Um, abandoning the language, you can abandon the language of being, but the, pro- the problem is, um, no pun intended, being still is. Uh, and we have to have a way to talk about it that is truthful and coherent, and also that is sufficient to enable us to rule out error, um, whether that's error about the manner of creaturely being, or whether that's error about the manner of divine being. If we don't have a somewhat rich and textured vocabulary that has real content and, and meaning attached to it, if we lose that language, we do begin to actually lose the very instrument by which we express God's otherness, his absoluteness, um, his beyondness with respect to being, because the being language itself has been sort of complicated and confused um, as we sort of, you know, withdrew from it. I, I that, Maybe that's my rough, my mm. rough version of... Okay sort of the the historical events that that moved us toward the loss of the textured language of being. James, you have a message you'll be delivering at the conference down here in January on divine simplicity. And so I'd love to hear you articulate that doctrine a little bit and then uh, also indicate its significance. You know, our confession, 1689 Baptist Confession, and if our podcast listeners don't have one, you can grab this one right here, founders.org, founders.org. It's a great resource. Um, If there wasn't a pesky little comma in that doctrine of God, then we would all understand it quite simply. Uh, It says God is without uh, body parts. And so if, if we you know, we can understand that. Well, God's without body parts. Problem is there's a comma. God is without body, comma, parts. So God is without parts. Um, Once you spell out a little bit of what that means. Uh, First of all, I made that mistake once upon a time, uh, (laughs) reading the confession. Uh, Westminster, Second London, both have the the, the little comma there. Originally, I think that exact phrase was coined by um, Archbishop Cramner, uh, Thomas Cramner, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. And he does. He says, God is without body, parts, or passions. And I think to myself, well, God is spirit. Those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus says that a spirit doesn't have um, a body like we do. That's very clear. And so if God is spirit, of course, he doesn't have body parts. Um, but the comma between body and parts, uh, as you pointed out, indicates that there's something more to this partlessness than simply um non-corporeal or non non-materiality um though that certainly is a that certainly is an aspect of partlessness of course if he's without parts 
body parts would be included. Um, maybe a couple, maybe a couple remarks on simplicity and what drives it. Because on on I think the to the modern Christian to say God is simple might almost sound like an insult. <laughs> um, when I call something simple or simple, if I call a person simple, um, that might be the equivalent of saying that that he's a dunce um, or he's or he's thick or uninteresting or uh, in all number of of insults um, that he's unintelligent. Uh, so that simple seems to be somehow inferior, uh, and to call God simple, um, and in fact, I think Stephen Charnock, uh, following Thomas Aquinas in his existence and attributes of God, God is the most simple being, um, which almost sounds like the biggest insult that you could ever <laughs> hurl at someone. Um, and yet, what what really the the tradition is after, and you'll find this language of simplicity all the way from the middle of the second century. Um, right down into um, early 20th century uh, theology, like in the hands of Herman Bovink, for instance. So what, what they're really after is not simple in the sense of inferior, um, uh, in, in inferior in greatness or something like this, but really that simple is that which is not composed of parts. Um, why would we say that God is not composed of parts? And, and most, most basically, it's this, that whatever is composed of parts is dependent in a double way. Whatever is composed of parts is doubly dependent. It's dependent on its parts, uh, and it's dependent on whatever supplies unity to those parts. So that uh, if we were to take um, uh, a an automobile, take your Toyota Corolla or something like that. Um, your Toyota Corolla depends, it's a material entity, true, but it depends upon several things like uh, a drive shaft and a fuel injector and and uh, a, steering, a steering column and, and axles. And and I'm, gonna, I'm getting out of my league here, bushings <laughs> and bearings. and A key, and, that's uh, all I know, a key. <laughs> that's right. All right, am I, am I uh, but you get the idea that, that, that the, the car itself is really the result it's the consequent yeah. of several more basic components cohering together in a unity producing it. So the things composed of parts are as such necessarily dependent entities, entities that require something not identical with themselves, the way that four tires are not identical with a car or the way that um, an air compressor unit uh, produce, you know, that is part of your air conditioning in your car is not the car. The car is really the, the consequent of several things, not a car coming together to produce this composite entity. Um, and I think the thing we have to say about all things composed of parts, whether physical or metaphysical, is that composite entities depend upon, let me be very, let me be a little bit nerdy about this, um, units of being more fundamental, more basic in being than the whole. Mm -hmm. So that every whole depends upon some source of actualization, some unit of being causing it that is more fundamental in being than itself. The problem, if we said this about God, if God were the consequent of several wonderful parts, there's a, a retired philosopher at University of Notre Dame, Thomas Morris, once said that God is the greatest compossible set of great-making properties. Uh, my simple response to that is, uh, no, he's not. <laughs> um, 
because God is not a set of properties. Sets are collections that depend on things that are not sets, if you get what I'm after. Every set is really the result or the outcome of something not identical with itself, namely all of its components. Mm. What What we can't say as Christians is that there's some unit or source of being for God that is more fundamental than God. And we and it's, it's for a very um, straightforward reason that we say this, that the Bible itself clearly says that all things are from him, through him, and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. And there are several passages similar to that in the Old and New Testament. But if that is the case, if all things are from God, through God, and to God, then God cannot be composed of parts because things composed of parts are in fact ontologically, in terms of their being, from their parts. Um, and this is this would be a problem. If God were from parts, uh, then God would be dependent on what is not God in order to be God. Um, again, because every part, in so much as it is a part, is not identical with the whole um, that is comprised uh, out of it. Um, so I think that's the bait. I don't know. If I were to say to somebody, uh, if somebody were to say, well, what what are you really trying to protect with the doctrine of divine simplicity? Uh, it's really God's irreducibility. It's God's absoluteness of being. It's that there's nothing behind God or deeper in being than God upon which God depends in order to be God. If God is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, if all things that exist exist because that are not God exist because he makes them to be, then uh, God has to be um, a being who is not himself made to be. God has to be an absolute, irreducible, ontologically basic first cause of being. You know, um, and I think that's underneath it all. I think most Christians in their heart of hearts believe that God does not depend on what is not himself in order to be. That's that is that's sort of fundamental basic Christianity. Divine simplicity is just an elaborate scheme, a good scheme of denials by which we articulate several ways in which a thing might be composed of units of being, and then we deny that God is so. Mm. Um, So that's really what simplicity is. It's It's a way of protecting that basic fundamental conviction that there's nothing more absolute and fundamental in being than God. Um, And then sort of articulating ways of composition and then denying that God is composite in any of those ways. You can see kind of the domino effect that would come as you articulated that the truth of simplicity, divine simplicity, and then the significance of it. It seems that if you lose divine simplicity, you may very well soon lose uh, aseity. You would lose God's self-existence or um, his self-sufficiency. And as you talked about that, I was reflecting back. Something Tom and I have talked about recently is we've uh, assessed some of the common conceptions of uh, humanity it seems while we have lost the simplicity of God, we have gained the simplicity of man. We have started to teach the simplicity of man. That man is independent. We recently did a, a podcast on um, uh, dealing with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And one of the things she said about um, women and even in relationship to abortion was the importance of autonomy and its relationship to abortion, that a woman has this uh, charge, this autonomous charge over her full life's course that she is self-sufficient. 
And that's you can see it happening with the erosion of the doctrine of God. All of a sudden, we're starting to turn man into God. We're starting to say, well, no, what's the common conception of um, American thought about humanity? Well, we are independent. Mm-hmm. We're independent people. We're not dependent. And when in truth, we are dependent. And so that's why this we're so excited about this doctrine of God conference that's coming up. We need to recover the doctrine of God. One of the clear things is he's the only God. We are not God. He is God. You know, James, your, uh, your explanation there was really good. And, and I'm thinking through ways that I have heard people speak about the attributes of God. And it seems like this is a, a pathway you can get on that will take you to bad ends if you're not clear about the nature of God in his simplicity because the the attributes can be named and discussed and done so in such a way that when you're finished, if you're not careful, it sounds like, and you put all this together and you've got God. And yeah, yeah I, we got to fight against that's that. That's right. It, you know, one, one part goodness, one part wisdom, one part love, one part justice and so on. And then, you know, shake well and <laughs> and the outcome is a, a concoction that we call deity uh and i think that that's a and I, I i on one level i understand why people might make that mistake initially but it's a mistake that needs to be and we have the resources in our tradition and in scripture to correct the mistake uh, because i say so many things about god and because the many things i say are not just um repetitious synonyms when i say that god is uh true and loving and just and eternal uh and powerful and all the many things i say about god it it is a challenge to understand why my if i can say it like this why my multi-parted god talk mm does not, in a certain sense, map out a multi-parted God. Um, if I were, if I were to say, um, if, if you, you know, if you were seated, if I were to say, Tom is seated, that's a multi-parted statement with a subject, Tom, and a predicate, something true about Tom, that he is in the, he's in the, the his posture is that of being seated. Um, and yet there's a certain sense in which being Tom and being seated are really distinct in you. Um, being Tom is the human substance that you are. Being seated is a state of being that you enter into and can pass out of when you stand up and walk out of the room. So that it turns out that my sort of multi-parted statement, Tom plus seatedness, um, it, in one respect syncs up with a real multi-partedness out there. Mm-hmm. Um, being Tom and being seated aren't the same thing. I know this because sometimes you're Tom and you're not sitting down. Uh and so I think the tendency is to think that because our because our language about multi because our multi-part language about multi-part realities tends to kind of um, sync up or map out those parts simply by its multi-parted way of speaking, it's tempting to think that our language has to function and operate the same way with respect to God. So when I say mm-hmm. God is wise or God is just or God is true or God is eternal, that being God and being these things I say God is are in fact um, some kind of collection of distinct realities that sort of cohere in some moment in God's life. It's tempting to think that way because that's how that's how creature talk works about creatures. Isn't that how my creature talk about God, the non-creature, must work? Mm. Um, and I think at this point we need to, in, in all of our thinking of God and in all of our talk about God, there needs to be this sort of abiding recognition of, of a profound sort of um, 
incommensurability um, between my God talk and God's being so that my, well, I can put it like this. Um, I've never had an infinite thought of God. I've only had finite thoughts of the infinite. I've never had a timeless thought of timelessness. I've only had temporal thoughts about timelessness so that there's a certain, there's a certain creatureliness inescapable creatureliness in our way of thinking and in our way of expressing theological truths, what we don't want to do is then map that distinct creatureliness of the manner of our God Mm. talk onto the manner of divine being. I want to be able to say, just because my thoughts about God are multi-part doesn't mean God is multi-part. Just because my thoughts about God are finite doesn't mean God is finite. Mm. Uh, And I think that there's a there's a correction or an adjustment that we need to make um, in terms of our way of speaking, the manner of our speaking and the manner of his being, which really transcends uh, in its way of being our way of speaking. So I, I hope that makes sense, but that's a, that's a correction that we need to sort of rediscover uh, in our theologizing. Uh, I'm thinking pastoral implications here is people hear these things um, to, to, things that need shepherding one is how do we deal with this language um reality you know how do uh, is the bible trustworthy when it tells me right. about god so could you speak a little bit to that first uh, that yes the language is is trustworthy doesn't mean that it's not um it's not telling us something that is true and then secondly with um with simplicity in particular with um impassibility uh, the other implication is, you know, can can I can I know God? Do, do I've been taught I have a relationship to God, and then uh, and then God has love toward me, mercy toward me. So those things, I believe you've articulated in the past, they're actually more real. They're more sure, uh, both on the word pastoral implication and on that relationship pastoral implication. Could you speak to both of those? Yeah, that's those are great questions. Uh, I think the first thing we have to say is that. Um, non-literal language or language that isn't um, also isomorphic, that is just to say one-to-one, doesn't mean that language is not able to truly refer. Um, So if I were to, just as a very simple example of metaphor, and by the way, I don't think, I think that there are metaphors in scripture, non-literal statements when it speaks about God's nostrils, um, when it speaks about his bowels being upset, and when it speaks about his right arm and also his bow and arrow, um, these are all anthropomorphisms. These are these are taking imagery that is unique to humans, um, and trying and saying something true about God, but under a, a manner or an imagery that isn't literally true about Him. But but nevertheless is able to is able to speak truthfully about Him. There are other statements in Scripture uh, that are not are not um, metaphor, but are in fact literally true. That God is wise and God is just and God is love. Um, are all literally true statements, but the manner of my saying them, as far as far as three distinct predicates with multi-parted propositions, subjects plus predicates, is where the um, is where the sort of um, non-symmetry lies. So it doesn't lie. In, it's not. It's not that my statements are out of line with truth. Um, it's that statements that that the the mode of the statement can convey truth even if the mode does not sync up with the thing so i can say i can say in a multi even saying god is simple is a multi-part statement about not to say god is without parts is a multi-part statement about non-multi-partedness so we can see right away that man, the manner of speaking uh 
if it doesn't correlate, if it doesn't sync up with the manner of being, does not deprive the manner of speaking from having referential truth value. Mm. Um, I think the other, I mean, we could say it in other ways. If I, if I, even if I were to ask a listener, do you grasp what I'm saying? Um, if the person said yes, even that's a metaphor because you grasp objects with your hand, but I'm just using it metaphorically here about your mind. Are you are you laying hold of the truth of these statements with your mind? I'm using the language of grasping in a kind of non-literal way. I think the other the other question we should ask is, well, if if I have all these things I say about God, good, wise, loving, just, true, and eternal, and yet what I'm saying is that, that God isn't a collection of love plus truth plus justice plus eternality, um, then is not this very multi-partedness um, deceiving me about what is true with respect to God. And I don't, I don't think we should say that just for, for one uh, basic reason, which is this, that it, what is simple in God is not, is not understood or uh, uh, apprehended by us uh, in, in the pure, in the pure manner of simplicity by which it exists in God. Um, And what I mean by that is this, I come to the knowledge of God bit by bit. Um, I come through his, through both, uh, through both clothes of himself in nature, his divine, his divine nature, his eternal power and invisible attributes being made known through the things that are made. And also through things that are made known to me in Holy scripture. I come bit by bit to know, uh, truth about God, but that doesn't mean that God is a bit by bit being that is somehow a, a collection of these things. The older writers use this uh, analogy of pure white light passing through a prism, so that when white light strikes a prison prism, it undergoes a a, a, a refraction by which the light is as it were, broken apart into the various colors of the rainbow. And yet, and so what you have in the ones in the one sense as simple luminosity actually becomes spectral luminosity in the way that we perceive it. So that if you can, and oh, and I should add to that in terms of the analogy, there's nothing in the rainbow in terms of its variegated, uh, you know, spectrum of color that isn't contained in the pure white light, but it's not contained in the pure white light in that spectral way. What I want to say with regard to the divine attributes, if we can think of creation as a prism through which the light God's glory passes, and as the light of that simple glory, not multi-parted glory, but simple glory, as the light of that glory passes through the prism of creation, it refracts into a, a variegated rainbow of color, which we might just simply call the attributes, and we perceive goodness and wisdom and love and just and truth and eternity. We perceive and come to know these as they are revealed to us in the refracted spectrum, which is simply God making himself known in a variety of ways over time in creation and in redemption, clearly seen to us in the things that are made and recorded for us in the inerrant word of God. And so what we perceive is spectral glory, but all the while we know 
that what underlies the spectral glory is not more spectral glory, but is in fact the simple glory of the God without parts. Hmm. I have multi, my knowledge of God is multi-parted. My divine, my, my catalog of divine attributes is full of various entries and, and parts as it were. But what under, what, what makes all those things true? What makes it true that God is good or wise or loving or just or true is not that he has a bit of love and a bit of truth and a bit of justice. It's really that God, it's really that God just is all those things I say that he is. So God, to be God and to be loving is just God being God. For God to be loving and for God to be, or for God to be God and God to be true is just God being the truth by which He is true. So, in that respect, in that respect, the truth of all those things I say about God is true of God, but the manner in which it's true of God is not spectral; it's simple. I, I hope that analogy at least gets somewhat at why we can, why multi-parted God talk isn't falsehood. Yeah. Even if it is a kind of um, non-symmetrical adjustment and accommodation to our creatureliness, James, this has been fascinating. And uh, man, if uh, folks didn't understand before why we are going to have a conference on the doctrine of God, I hope that our conversation today will whet their appetite mm. and show them the need of this. If we get God wrong, then it doesn't matter what we get right. Or, or in fact, we might argue you can't get anything right if you don't get God right and let God speak for Himself in Scripture. So, thank you so much for your willingness to have the conversation. Again, man, we're looking forward to having you with us January 21 through 23 at the Founders Conference here in Cape Coral, Florida. Uh, we are praying for you uh, daily and uh, look forward to having you with us. Yeah, amen. And hopefully you got a little taste of what's coming up in January. And if you liked it, sign up, register for that conference. We're going to have a great time there. James, uh, we're going to wrap this up, but I don't know if you'd be willing to stay around for about five minutes. We have the Armory. It's where some of our fan members can get extra content. And we didn't get into God Without Passions, but I'd love for you to just address in in brevity um, God Without Passions and why that makes his love for us even more sure than we think it, than we often think it is. So thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. And uh, that's it.